Good morning. I'm excited to be with y'all this morning here in the 915 service. Um, normally I'm downstairs, but it's good to be up here. Um, hopefully y'all are a little more mature than middle schoolers. We'll see, though, at the end of the service. See how many times I have to call y'all out for throwing something across the room. Um, but like I said, I'm excited to get to um, be up here to speak this morning um, as we celebrate Brother Tim being on sabbatical. Um, get to celebrate his faithfulness um, to this church over the last 20 years, but also to celebrate your faithfulness in caring for your ministers well. Um, so thank you for that. Um, so I didn't approve this with Mike, but I'm going to do it anyways. Um, so most of the time at the 11 o'clock service, um, during the welcome, I always give them a joke. But y'all don't ever get to hear my jokes. And so y'all been missing out. Um, so I'm going to give y'all one of my best ones since I'm up here this morning. So here it is. What is a dentist's favorite hymn? Crown him with many crowns. <laughs> See? Okay. So um, if you have a copy of the Word, if you want to go ahead and open up to Hebrews chapter 4, um, that's where we'll be today. As we continue in our series, um, And the Word Became Flesh, and as we talk about the Incarnation. Um, so we're going to be in Hebrews chapter, well, we'll be in Hebrews 4, 5, and then we'll touch a little bit of 7, too. So if you're able to stand, if you will stand with me as we read the word. And we'll start reading in verse 14 in chapter 4. Since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. For every high priest chosen from among men is appointed to act on behalf of men in relation to God, to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He can deal gently with the ignorant and wayward, since he himself is beset with weakness. Because of this, he is obligated to offer sacrifice for his own sins, just as he does for those of the people. And no one takes this honor from, for himself, but only when called by God just as Aaron was. So also Christ did not exalt himself to be made a high priest, but was appointed by him who said to him, You are my son, today I have begotten you. And he says also in another place, You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. In the days of his flesh, Jesus offered up, up prayers and supplications with loud cries and tears to him who was able to save him from death, and he was heard because of his reverence. Although he was a son, he learned obedience through what he suffered. And being made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation to all who obey him, being designated by God a high priest after the order of Melchizedek. And if you'll skip down to chapter 7. And in verse 23, it says, The former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office. But he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. 
Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him, since he is always since he always lives to make intercession for them. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, and exalted above the heavens. He has no need, like those high priests, to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once and for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men and their weaknesses as high priests, but the word of the oath which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we humbly come before you this morning, our great high priest. We thank you that the word did become flesh and that you made your dwelling among us so that you could sympathize with us in our times of weakness. So as we come to the word this morning, we just pray that God will guide Christ will redeem, and the Spirit will convict and draw unto himself. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And the Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. Over the past month leading up to Christmas, we've been digging in and exploring the reason for the season. I hope by now that you have all your Christmas shopping done, um, and if not, you still have well, the rest of today and all of tomorrow to go fight the crowds. But presents, we know, are not the reason for the season. As we celebrate Christmas, we're celebrating the birth of Jesus. We're celebrating God putting his plan of redemption into action. Christmas is ultimately a celebration of the incarnation of Jesus the Christ. I want to take a couple of minutes before we get started to, for us to back up and trace our steps over the past three Sundays this morning. Um, the first Sunday when we started this series, we began by asking the question, what is the incarnation? We said, ultimately, the incarnation is the embodiment of the second person of the Trinity, God the Son, in human flesh. We discussed how, Jesus is, how who Jesus is is just as important as what he has done. In the beautiful, beautiful mystery of the incarnation, Jesus was fully God and fully man. We even looked at a couple of really big words that were hard to pronounce, that docetism, um, and to see how many people throughout history had either tried to take Christ's deity away, and they said he was just a man, or how on the other side they tried to diminish his manhood and said that he was just God, only appearing to be human. That we saw the need for us to know that God is fully God and fully man in order to take away our sins. And then the second week, we looked at how Jesus is our perfect representative in life. Christ lived a life just as we do, yet he lived it without sin. He was tempted and suffered all in the same ways that we do, but he did not fall short. He remained perfect. Then last week we talked about Jesus as our perfect substitute in death. Because he lived that perfect life, he did not have a punishment to pay, but yet he did pay the ultimate price. He paid the punishment in our place. And so today, as we start talking about Christ as our perfect priest, I want us to see how Christ's death alone does not save us. In order for us to be acquitted from the penalty of our sins, 
death still had to be defeated. The resurrection, the Father's amen to the Son's it is finished, completes salvation. It is in Jesus' resurrection that he ascends back to heaven and takes his place at the right hand of God as our great high priest. Our passage today that we read is from the book of Hebrews. And before we really get into talking about it, I want us to see the big picture of the book. We don't really know who the author of Hebrews is, but his, one of his main purposes in writing Hebrews was to show us the superiority and the supremacy of Christ. In chapter 1, he talks about how Jesus is greater than the angels. In chapter 3, he talks about how Jesus is greater than Moses. And then pretty much through chapters 4 all the way pretty much through 10, he talks about how Jesus is greater than the earthly high priest. And as we start talking about this, I want us to keep in mind that all of Scripture connects. The Bible is one big narrative that takes us from the source of the problem, which we find in Genesis chapter 3, in our rebellion, seen in Adam and Eve, all the way to the solution to that problem in Jesus Christ. So as we look at the Old Testament, everything in the Old Testament is pointing us toward Jesus. When we talk about things in the Old Testament, such as the law, the tabernacle, some of the characters like Moses and Abraham, and even the earthly priest, we are talking about shadows of what is to come. But the only thing is, the shadows in the Old Testament, they offer great hope, but they lack in substance. Imagine that you're a kid again, and you're in a crowded store like Walmart or um, Belk or somewhere around Christmas time, and there's a bunch of people, and everybody's um, moving around. They're busy with their, what they're trying to do. They're trying to get their last-minute shopping done. And all of a sudden, you get separated from your mom. You begin to get really nervous, and you begin to get really worried. You start frantically looking for her. Or maybe, we've seen kids do this too, maybe you just throw yourself on the ground and start crying. It's in this moment that nothing will bring you greater joy than seeing your mother come around the corner. But what if, instead of seeing your mother come around the corner, you just see her shadow come around the corner? I mean, we know that seeing her shadow means that her presence is near. But her shadow does not rescue you. Only her presence will bring you rescue during that, mo during that moment. It's only when she actually appears that you're saved from your despair. The priests in the Old Testament are this same type of shadow for Jesus. Their presence in the Old Testament points, or their presence in the Old Testament points to and means something greater is close. But in the Old Testament, under the Old Co Covenant, humans did not have the same kind of access to God that we have today. While anyone could pray, no one was allowed into, direct, into the direct presence of God. In fact, instead of God's presence residing in each believer, God's presence was limited to the innermost part of the tabernacle, behind the curtain. And only one person was allowed in that inner room. And even he was only allowed once a year. The priest could not just decide to walk up in the room anytime he felt like it. Even before he went in, he had to go through several washings. And first, he had to make a sin offering for himself. 
It was only after ceremonially making himself clean that the high priest would enter into the inner room and make an offering on behalf of the people of Israel. So as we're talking about Jesus as our great high priest, I want us to first remember the priest in the Old Testament had three jobs. The first one, they offered gifts and sacrifices for the sins of the people. The second, they interceded on behalf of the people. And third, they taught God's word to the people. And even though the high priest interceded for the people and made sacrifices for them, they could not save them. In fact, priests could not even save themselves. The priests were just a shadow for what was to come. Their offerings were just a reminder of the sins committed for the people, which held a promise of a final offering that would be offered later by a great high priest who would atone for sin eternally. Priests were to be set apart or sanctified for their roles as a mediator between God and man. They stood in the gap between the holy divine and the unholy multitude. So our first point I want us to see this morning is Jesus' Jesus's incarnation means that he is a great high that means that he is a great high priest who is able to sympathize with us. So in short, if you're taking notes, you can just write able to sympathize. Jesus as our perfect priest forever is important because it means that he is able to sympathize with us during our times of trials, temptations, and weaknesses. As we talked about during week one, Jesus was both fully God and fully human. His divinity did not stop his humanity from suffering, nor from being tempted. Thus, we've arrived at our truth focus this morning, which is this. The humanity of Jesus did not end at his death, nor diminish after his resurrection. Hebrews 2, 17-18 says, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect, so that he might become a more merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people, for because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. If we think back to December 2nd, we saw how Jesus displayed his full humanity while he was here on earth. In John 4, as he was traveling through Samaria, in verse 6 we read that Jacob's well was there. And Jesus, tired as he was from the journey, sat down by the well. Continue in verse 7. It says, When a Samaritan woman came to draw water, Jesus said to her, Will you give me a drink? Then we see Christ thirsting again while on the cross in John 19, 28. In Matthew 4, 2, we read, After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, that he was hungry. His humanity includes all the physical needs that we experience. He hungered, he thirsted, he grew weary, and he needed rest. He was fully a man, just as all humans, subject to the necessities of life. Jesus not only shared in human appearance and needs, but he also shared in human emotions. Throughout Scripture, Jesus displays the same emotions that we experience. In Matthew 21, 12 through 17, as Jesus enters the temple where the money changers are um, taking advantage of those buying and selling. He overturns the tables, and he chases them out and drives them out. Here Jesus shows his anger. He didn't sin the way we get angry on 280, but because his was a righteous, passionate anger, trying to defend his people. But he has that emotion. 
In John 11, Jesus comes to the grave of Lazarus with Mary and Martha. In verse 33-35 say, says, When Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who had come alongside her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you laid him? he asked. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And we have the shortest verse in Scripture that we all know. Jesus wept. Here, Jesus displays his feeling of compassion, whether it's a compassion for hurt or a compassion for their lack of faith. It still moves him and brings him to tears. In Luke twenty-two forty-four, 44, we read, And being in anguish, he prayed more earnestly, and his sweat was like drops of blood falling to the ground. Jesus, knowing his time was about to come, and that he should be arrested, that he should be crucified, that he should be beaten, mocked, and ridiculed, that he should be put to death. He suffered more emotionally than we could ever imagine. He was so emotionally tormented by, his, by this thought that he sweat drops of, like blood. Along with his appearance, physical needs, and emotion, Jesus also shared in our humanity by being tempted. In Matthew 4, he faces the temptation through the lusts of the flesh, turn this stone to bread, the lusts of the eyes, Cast yourself down from the temple, and the angels will stop you. And the pride of life. Bow down and worship me, and everything can be yours. He faced temptation just as we do, yet he was perfectly obedient to the Father's will, and he did not fall as we do. Because of the incarnation, we do not have a God who is far off, We do not have one who is far above us. We don't even have one who cannot relate to us. Rather, we have a God who knows and understands our sufferings even more than we do. Can we say in our times of needs, in our times of sufferings, in our times of trials, in our times of temptations, that we always look to God, that we always remain faithful? No. When placed in these situations, we turn in ourselves, and most of the time we forget about God altogether. In need, we tire ourselves out trying to make things happen on our own. In sufferings, we blame God. In trials, we falter. In temptations, we fall. Jesus experienced loss. He did not even have a place to lay his head. He was tempted in the wilderness. He was rejected by his own people. He was mocked. He was was betrayed by those closest to him. Yet, he remained obedient to the Father. If you're still not seeing the importance of Jesus being our perfect priest forever, you're missing part of the glory and the beauty of his redemption. In the passage we read in Hebrews 5, verses 6 and 10, Jesus is referenced as a priest after the order of Melchizedek. I mean, what a name. I think me and Sydney might have to write that one down for when we decide to have kids. But if Jesus is coming after Melchizedek, coming from his line, coming from his order, this must be like a super important guy. But the thing is, Melchizedek is only mentioned once in the Old Testament, in Genesis chapter 4, and then once again here in the New Testament, in Hebrews 5 and 7. So who is this guy? Look back at chapter 7, 
in verses 1 through 3, it says, For this Melchizedek, king of Salem, priest of the Most High God, met Abraham returning from the slaughter of the kings and blessed him. And to him Abraham apportioned a tenth part of everything. He is first, by translation of his name, king of righteousness, and then he is also king of Salem, that is, king of peace. He is without father or mother or genealogy, having neither be beginning of days nor end of life, but resembling the Son of God, he continues a priest forever. There are a few things that strike us odd in this description. First off, anybody in the Old Testament who is of any importance has their genealogy listed. Who they, whose line they came from is really important. But this Melchizedek guy does not have one recorded in the Old Testament. As a man, he must have been born at some point. He must have died at another point. But the author of Hebrews wants us to see him as a type for Christ. Christ, the one who will be our great high priest, will have no beginning and he will have no end. He is eternal. He is eternal God. The other unusual thing we notice is that Melchizedek is both a king and a priest. These two roles are never combined. The role of a king and the role of a priest are almost contrary to each other. Have you ever heard of the good cop, bad cop routine? You've probably seen it in some kind of criminal show, or maybe you and your spouse have played it on your children. I don't know. But good cop, bad cop only works if there's two cops. If there's just one cop playing good cop, bad cop, it kind of makes you look crazy. In the same way, the role of king and priest are almost polar opposites. The kings represented the wall. The kings were God's representative to the people. The kings demanded holiness. They demanded righteousness. They demanded perfection. The king's job was to make sure the law was upheld and to bring judgment when the law was broken. Since we are prone to sin, this means the king is the picture of justice. And what is justice for us? Justice is the punishment. Justice is death. The priest, on the other hand, represented grace. The priest, where the king was God's representative to the people, the priest was the people's representative to God. The priest was a friend, a counselor. The priest's job was to intercede for the people because they had broken the law. The priest's job was to keep the punishment of death away from the people by offering animal sacrifices in their place. The priest was a picture of mercy. The priest was a person of tears. He sympathized with the people. Why? Why did he sympathize with the people? Because the priests themselves were people. The priests themselves were men. And just like other men, the earthly priests in the Old Testament fell. They rebelled against God and they sinned. Thankfully, these earthly priests in the Old Testament were just a shadow of what was to come. A perfect priest who would go through all that we do without sinning. Melchizedek was just a shadow of what was to come. He was a type for the perfect priest and king, Jesus. See, it's in Jesus that these two offices, king and priest, are perfectly fulfilled. Jesus is the embodiment of both truth and mercy. He is the embodiment of both the law and the grace. 
out of justice, the punishment of sins had to be carried forth. But out of grace and mercy, the punishment fell on Jesus, not on us. It is on the cross that the role of king and the role of priest are so beautifully and perfectly combined. Jesus as king came and fulfilled the law by living a perfect life. But Jesus as priest offers his own life as a sacrifice on our behalf so that we do not have to pay that punishment. The earthly priests were able to be sympathetic and could deal gently with men because they were men. Jesus, too, can deal gently with us because he was a man. Jesus did live not in sublime detachment or in an ascetic isolation, but with us as the fellow man of all men, crowded, busy, harassed, stressed, and molested. No large estate gave him space. No financial capital guaranteed his daily bread. No personal staff protected him from interruptions. And no power or influence protected him from injustice. Listen to this. He saved us from alongside us. He saved us from alongside us. This truly is a big deal. So often we think God does not know what we're going through. We think he's just sitting up in heaven having a big old time and he has no idea our struggles. But he knows all too well because he has experienced it. Jesus experiences life in a human body and in, hum and in a human soul. He experiences human pain and human temptations. He suffers poverty and loneliness and humiliation. He tastes death. Before and apart from the incarnation, God knew such things by observation. But observation, even when it is, in, even when it is that of omniscience, falls short of personal experience. That is what the incarnation made possible for God. Real, personal experience of being human. You are not going through your struggles alone. Your perfect high priest knows what struggles feel like. He knows what anger feels like. He knows what losing someone feels like. He knows what being rejected feels like. He knows what being lonely feels like. He knows what being tempted feels like. He knows. Lean on him and let his strength overcome your weakness. And even when we fall short and sin, we can still lean on him. Listen to this quote. It says, It is a spiritually minded person with a clean heart who sympathizes with a sinner and seeks to help him. Because we are so sinful, we have a hard time helping other sinners. But because Jesus is perfect, he is able to meet our needs after we sin. If an earthly priest could sympathize with weakness, even though he himself was weak, how much more can a perfect priest forever sympathize with us? It was C.S. Lewis who said, A silly idea is current that good people do not know what temptation means. This is an obvious lie. Only those who try to resist temptation know how strong it is. After all, you find out the strength of the German army by fighting against it, not by giving in. 
You find out the strength of a wind by trying to walk against it, not by lying down. A man who gives in to temptation after five minutes simply does not know what it would have been like an hour later. That is why bad people, in one sense, know very little about badness. They have lived a sheltered life by always giving in. We never find out the strength of the evil impulse inside us until we try to fight it. And Christ, because he was the only man who never yielded to temptation, is the only man who knows to the full what temptation means. Because he is the only complete realist. The second point we have today is, because of Jesus' incarnation, he is a high priest who intercedes on our behalf forever. So if you're writing your notes, you can just write, intercedes forever. One of the main roles of the priest was to stand in place of the people and plead their case by offering animal sacrifices for their sins. The priest would offer prayers and sacrifices on behalf of the people. To picture this, just ask your friends that are teachers um, what happens after they post their grades. If, a, if a, their child receives a bad grade, too often that parent will contact the teacher and they, try, they intercede on their child's behalf. The parent will call the teacher and they'll make some kind of crazy petition on their child's behalf. Pretty much we know from knowing our own children, every time the problem is because the child has failed to do their work. In the same way, we have failed to do the work. We have failed to live up to God's standard. We have not been obedient. We have not kept his word. The priest in the Old Testament would go before God in place of the people to make a petition on their behalf. This process was not perfect, though. It was plagued with problems because it was just a shadow. The first problem we see is that earthly priests were sinners themselves. They could not perfectly intercede for the people because they too were guilty and had to ask forgiveness for their own sins. The second problem with the earthly priesthood is that their sin offerings had to be repeated over and over and over again, year after year. They continually had to offer sacrifices, and there were not enough animals in the whole world to offer enough blood to atone for the sins of the people. And the third problem was that the priests could not live forever. Each earthly priest died just like the people they were interceding for. What would happen after the priest died and before another priest was anointed? Would the people just be left guilty without an intercessor? What about when the temple was destroyed and there was no longer a place to offer sacrifices? With the death and absence of a priest, there would be no one to intercede for the people to keep the wrath of God from falling on them. This is why Jesus, as our perfect priest forever, is so important. He had no sin. Therefore, he could take on all of ours. He does not have to plead for himself before the Father. He only pleads for us. Because his blood was spotless, he does not have to continually he does not have to continue to offer himself on the cross, but his death was a once and for all sacrifice that does not have to be repeated. And because he has done the work once and for all, and because he was raised from the dead, being fully God, 
having no beginning nor no end, he stands at the right hand of the Father on our behalf forever. There will never be an end to his priesthood. He stands before God petitioning through his once and for all sacrifice, his death. Every time you fall into, tempta every time you fall into temptation, he intercedes on the basis of his death. Every time you lose your temper with your spouse, he petitions the Father with his death. Every time you speak out of place about someone or let it slip while you're sitting in traffic on 280, Jesus, your high priest, prays on your behalf. Intercession involves our Lord's representation of his people at the throne of grace. Through Christ, believers are able to draw near to God in prayer and also to offer spiritual sacrifices to God. It has been well said that Christ's life in heaven is his prayer for us. Think about this. Even when you forget to pray, Jesus is at the right hand of God praying for you. Even when you're too busy to have a quiet time, Jesus is praying on your behalf before the Father. When you're mad at God and not talking to him because he's not answered your prayer, your high priest stands before God and makes a petition in your place. That one hit me hard this week. When I get busy trying to run my own life, trying to make things happen on my own, when I am too anxious about what is going on here to stop and trust God, Jesus is at the right hand of God pleading my case through his death. You know what else is pretty cool? There is no sin that you can commit that he will just up and decide he will not intercede for. He won't say, oh, there, not that one. That, that was too big. I'm not interceding for that one today. I'll skip it. Jesus is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make, to make intercession for them. We are the uttermost. I am the uttermost. You are the uttermost. But you know what? Christ is able. Draw near to God through your perfect high priest. As we get kind of close to closing, I want us to go through a couple of points of application. And the first one I want us to see is this point of application is draw near to the throne of grace with confidence. So often we have such regret from our past mistakes. We look back on our lives and we see things that we've done and we've asked God for forgiveness. We know he's forgiven us, but we haven't forgiven ourselves. We carry around a guilt that we place on ourselves. And this causes us to come before God shrunk in on ourselves. We come before him timidly as though he cannot forgive us. We think we've not done enough to even come before him or to be before him. And you know what? It's exactly right. In our own strength. If it were up to us, we would never be allowed before God. But the thing is, it's not on us or up to us. Our entrance behind the curtain is through the death of the one who stands at the right hand of God. Therefore, because of his righteousness, we can boldly, with confidence, come before the throne of grace. Do you trust Jesus enough to come before him boldly? 
Is Jesus great enough for you to come before God boldly? Was Jesus' Jesus's life perfect enough for you to come before God boldly? Was Jesus' death sufficient enough for you to come before God boldly? Is Jesus an effective enough high priest for you to enter the throne room of God boldly, to stand before him and to truly spend time in prayer before your heavenly Father? Draw near to him with confidence because Christ is standing there allowing your access to God. The second point of application is this. During your time of need, turn to your sympathizing high priest. He knows far greater than even we do what it means to suffer. So you, who is currently watching a family member struggle, he knows. You, who is experiencing, experiencing the loss of a loved one, he sympathizes. You, who is physically weak, he's felt it. You who know, who you who feels isolated and alone, he understands. You who is anxious and scared, he is with you. God is not only above us and beyond us. Through the incarnation, he has, he has been here. He has experienced the pain and the hurt. He knows what it feels like. Turn to him. Allow him to help you carry that burden. Allow him just to take the burden all on himself. The third point of application, when you fall, turn to your advocate for confession of sin and forgiveness. When you burst out in anger against your spouse or your children, Christ is at the right hand of the Father. When you've been self-righteous and not sought out God's grace, Jesus is, at, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. When you have regret for past mistakes, Jesus is at the right hand of the Father. And he's there at the right hand of the Father petitioning for you through his death so that you can experience forgiveness and freedom in him. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us from all our sins and to cleanse us from all our unrighteousness. Christmas is the celebration of Jesus coming close to us through the incarnation. And he came close to us through the incarnation so he could sympathize with us and stand in as our intercessor before the Father. And the last point of application is we are a priesthood. All Christians are priests in that they minister to the world with the gifts they've been given. You may not be in vocational ministry, but your work, your classroom, your home, your sharing God's truth, praying for people's physical and spiritual well-being, and your serving to build up the body of Christ is the work of ministry. In other words, you've been born again so that as a part of this royal priesthood, you will spread the aroma of Christ wherever you find yourself. To your spouse, to your children, to your parents, to your coworkers, to your boss, to your friends, your neighbors, and whoever else you run into today or this week. This is why you truly can't separate your life as a believer from your life as anything else. 
You don't set, a, set aside your calling to spread his excellencies when you're cleaning around the house or when you're completing a project at work or when you're going out with friends. Instead, you're either doing those things faithfully or you're doing them unfaithfully. Regardless of the specific task that you're involved with at any given moment, you are a priesthood. Your job is to take God's name to the nations, to teach them about his word, to intercede on behalf of your brothers and sisters, and to be there for them. This has to be our mindset. As believers, as we remember what Christ has done for us through Jesus, we are sent to others because he was sent to us. And his life, his entire life, was called up in his mission. So is mine, and so is yours. There is work to be done on behalf of others, because another has done his work on behalf of us. Let us pray. Dear Lord, we come to you this morning, and we just thank you that you are not far above us or far off from us. You're not a God who is distant from us or alien to us, but you're a God who comes and dwells with us. You're a God who knows us far greater than we ever could imagine knowing ourselves because you created us. You knit us together in our mother's wombs. And through the incarnation, you came to earth. You experienced the suffering and the trials and the temptations and the weaknesses you know what it's like to be lonely and to suffer and to experience loss. You know what it's like to be in need. And dear Lord, as we come to those times in our lives, we just pray that we will trust in you, the one who sympathizes with us. We will turn to you. We'll rely on your strength and our weakness. And dear Lord, we just pray that we will rest in the fact that you are interceding on our, on our behalf forever that you are able to save us to the uttermost. You're able to pull all people from all nations out of darkness and bring them into light. So as we continue this morning, we just pray that your spirit will convict and draw us to yourself so that we can come to you before our great high priest with confidence, resting in the power of what you've done on the cross. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.